Good morning. My name is Greg Moslick, and we are continuing our series in the book of Esther this morning. And specifically, we're going to be looking at one of the main characters in the book of Esther. We're going to be looking at a Jew named Mordecai. And specifically, we're going to be looking at a decision that he made that was remarkably wise and insightful. We're going to be in Esther chapter 9, verses 20 through 32. It's in page 789 of your pew Bible. You may actually want to look this up in your Bible because I'll have some of the passage up on the screen, but a lot of the passage I will not have up on the screen, so you might want to bring that up. But before we get into this, let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, we thank you for what we can learn because of this gift of your, your Bible, your word. God, we ask that you would help us to learn what we need to learn and help us to learn to do something with that information. Help us to become what you want us to be. We ask that your will continually be done in all things at all times, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. So the passage that we're looking at today in Esther 9, this particular part of the story actually starts way back in Esther 3 with a Jew named Mordecai deciding he is not going to bow down to a very important official named Haman. And this really bothers Haman. This really bothers him because he has a lot of pride. And Haman decides that killing Mordecai is just not enough. He will not get enough satisfaction from that. So he decides he has to kill all the Jews throughout the entire kingdom. And only that can pay for the penalty of not bowing down to him. Like I said, this guy's got some serious issues. So he decides uh, to kill the Jews pretty, pretty easily. But for some reason, he has a harder time deciding what day that they should be killed. So he pulls out some dice that are called purr, and he throws these dice, and the dice tell him that 11 months from now is the day that the Jews should be killed. So he goes to the king, King Xerxes, and he bribes the king into passing a law. And the law simply states that anybody who wants to can go out and kill as many Jews as they want and take their property and keep it for themselves. Well, through a remarkable series, an amazing series of events, everything gets turned around. The Jews are not killed. Instead, the enemies of the Jews are killed. It's an amazing thing. Haman is not able to kill Mordecai. Instead, he dies, and Mordecai gets his job. It's it's hard to even understand how amazing this is. I, I think the contemporary example would be thinking of Nazi Germany at the height of its power, suddenly deciding, you know what? Killing the Jews, that's, that's a bad idea. Let's kill all the people who hate the Jews instead. And let's get rid of this Hitler guy. We're going to kill him off, and we're going to replace him with a Jew. And this decision is made all within the period of about a day. Now, I don't know what you would call that, but that, for me, is very safely in the category of a miracle. I, I really have no problem putting it there. So let's take a look at today's passage. That brings us up to date. So all the enemies of the Jews are dead, and Mordecai is now second in command. 
And this is the passage. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month where their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration, he wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and give presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And the passage goes on in verse 23 through 28. The Jews get these letters and they agree, yes, this is a great idea. We should celebrate and, and, and continue to do this every year. And then they give a brief uh, history of what has happened in the book of Esther. And then they decide to name the festival. They call the festival the uh, Purim, Prim. And they name it after Pur, the dice that Haman used to determine which day the Jews should die. And it continues on in verses 29 through 32. Queen Esther and Mordecai agree with the Jews, and lenders are sent all over the kingdom. And Queen Esther makes it official that this is a celebration that's going to happen every year, and they're going to use it to remember. So this is a quick summary of the passage. Now I want to go back to the beginning where Mordecai is coming up with the first idea of this. Obviously, the Jews have a lot to celebrate. I mean, that's very clear to us. There's, there can be no doubt that um, this is worthy of a celebration. But Mordecai takes it a step further. Not only does he want to celebrate this particular event, but he wants us to remember this event. And that's why you celebrate it every year. My question to you is, and the question that we're going to be exploring a lot this morning, is this. What is it specifically that Mordecai wanted his people to remember? And when we, when we get into this and we dive into this, we can see that Mordecai actually has some great insight into human nature. But for us to fully appreciate what's going on here, we need to actually pull ourselves out of this passage. And we need to do a little study on ourselves. We need to see what God has to say about ourselves first. And then we're going we're gonna to do this and we're going to examine ourselves and then we're going to come back to the text and have a much deeper appreciation for Mordecai's wisdom. So, so bear with me here, right? This is going to be jarring. We're going to leave the passage, but we'll, we'll eventually come back to it. So we're going to shift gears here and I'm going to change the question. And my question to you is, and I want you to think about this, why is it that Christians sometimes doubt God. Now, obviously, as a Christian, there, this wouldn't be doubting the existence of God, because to some degree that has to be answered in order for you to become a Christian. But this would be more like doubting God's ability to help you or his willingness to help you, questions of this nature. So why do sometimes Christians doubt God? I have a friend of mine that I've known for many, many, many years. And, and I remember when this guy got married. It was maybe about four months into his marriage. He and his wife had a lot of debt. And every month that went by, they were getting further and further in debt, even though they had uh, two jobs. And at the time, I was working as a financial strategist, so I offered to help him. And we spent some time together, and we worked through some stuff, and we eventually got him into a place of great financial health. And they were, of course, very appreciative of my help. But what was interesting, though, 
As time went on, the role that I played became smaller and smaller and smaller until eventually I basically did nothing for them at all. They were the ones who had figured out their own finances to hear them tell it. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. <laughs> and then about a year went by, and they were having a lot of marital difficulties. As a matter of fact, my friend told me that he was actually considering divorce. And so I mentioned to him, I reminded him that, that one of the things that I really enjoy doing is marital counseling and family counseling. And I offered to help. And so we spent some time together, and eventually we, we, we found these problems and got this miscommunication worked through, and we, we got the marriage on a, on a good track and to a healthy, a healthy place. And you know, something interesting happened. As time went by, the story changed. At first, they were very grateful for my help. But to hear them tell it, over time, my, my role became smaller and smaller and smaller until eventually I played virtually no role in it at all. And I thought, again, well, this is very interesting. So some more years went by, and they had kids, and the kids were starting to grow up, and there was a, a lot of conflict and a lot of problems in, in their interactions with each other. So I reminded my friend that, yes, I, I like to do marriage counseling, but I also like to do family counseling. And I offered to help. Do you see a pattern? I, I'm really hoping that you're catching the pattern going on here. But you know what? What you think happened didn't happen because he turned me down. He turned me down flat. Because in his mind, they were the ones that saved their finances. They were the ones that saved their marriage. And they convinced themselves that they were the heroes of the story and that they, quite frankly, didn't need anybody else in their lives. And they are absolutely convinced that they could solve these problems with parenting. And what's interesting is that we do the same thing with God. I, I, I am like this, and I, I don't know if maybe this is true for you, but I do the same thing. I, I have God come and he helps me with something, and I am very grateful. But you know what? I'm, I'm very aware of the things that I do in my life. And, and I tend to be um, really, really focused on those things. And, and I don't mean to forget, but as time goes by, God's role in that event where it may start off really strong and even dominant, it becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And sometimes I can even convince myself that he really didn't play that much of a role. It was just kind of a coincidence sort of thing. Isn't that interesting? Do you have that ever happen to yourself? I, I know I'm certainly very guilty of that as well. See, we, we focus on our lives. We don't intend to, but we focus on our lives and we forget where it is that we're getting the help. But sometimes, sometimes it's all-out rebellion. <laughs> I choose to forget what God has done in my life. See, I've got this problem in front of me, and I have this awesome solution. It is so impressive. <laughs> and, I, and I think, you know what, I, I just gonna, I'm just going to do this myself. I know that I need to depend upon God. I know that his plans are best for me. But I come up with this plan, and I get caught up in the minutia of life, the details of life, and I, and I just want to keep going. 
and I choose to rebel. I choose to not even consult him. I choose to just do my own thing. And I choose to forget what God has done. And you know what's interesting is that whether I, quote-unquote, accidentally forget or whether I choose to forget, it's all called the same thing by God. It's called sin. And we're all guilty of it. And this is something, especially as Christians, that we have to acknowledge. So what is the exact definition of sin? It's actually quite simple. It means simply to miss the mark. It means that you're taking aim at something and you miss it. It means that we take something in our lives other than God and we make it more important than God. And it's so, so very easy to do. And whether it's through our pride or our arrogance or our ignorance or just our self-focus, we just naturally push God off to the side. We just naturally do this. And when we forget about God, the doubt comes in, and here comes the sin. And the reality is, is that sin is actually a very destructive thing. It can really warp our minds and our ability to understand reality. A great example of this is found in the book of Exodus, where the Jews are enslaved to the Egyptians. And God comes in a powerful, powerful way with miracles all over the place. And God makes it so clear. He loves these people, and he's going to take care of these people, and he's going to do whatever it takes to save his people. So, and he pulls them out of there, and he brings them towards the promised land. And in the middle of all of this, all of these miracles and this incredible, incredible stance for, of love for his people— in Exodus 32, you know what they do? A whole bunch of them get together and they take the gold. Gold that, by the way, God provided for them. And they melt it down and they turn it into a statue of a calf. And they take this chunk of metal and they said, this is what saved us. This is the source of our miracles all around us. Are you kidding me? The arrogance but, you know, I mean, these were people a long time ago. We are so much more sophisticated than them. I mean, no way do we have any of these issues going on. We don't have this sin warping going on in, like, say, our political system right now. I mean, there's no warping of truth that's coming towards us at all from our political leaders, right? Or in our world today, but of course there is. It's all over. And as a matter of fact, Sin is just as healthy as it ever has been and just capable of warping reality as much as it ever has been. So what is it that we're going to do, right? What are we going to do? How are we going to defeat this sin? Well, we defeat the sin the best way is to destroy the doubt in God. And a great way to do that, one way, is to get a spotter. Remember how the sin is missing the mark? If you have a spotter, somebody with binoculars, they can see just how close you are to hitting the mark, and they can help you out. It's somebody who can come into your life that knows what's going on and can help you get back on focus and put God back in the center of your life. And there's another thing that we can do, and this is where we're coming right back into the passage today. Here's where we're coming right back into the question that we had for, for Mordecai. We can keep a record. Right? 
We can record the events in life that happen where God comes into our lives or our family lives or other people's lives. Or we can take a look at the record in the Bible, right? And we can see these things and we can be encouraged by them. But another thing that we can do is that we can record our prayers. When we have these earnest, heartfelt prayers that we bring before God, we can write them out. And when we write them out, we need to have the faith to leave a blank space underneath so that God can come in and write out the answer. Because he will answer our prayers in a way that they need to be answered. Mordecai, Queen Esther, and the Jews prayed and fasted for three days. What did they want? They wanted to live. They wanted their race to survive another year. That's all that they wanted. Did they, did they want Haman to die and Mordecai to get his job? I doubt they even thought of something like that as being a possibility. Did they want all of their enemies to be killed in a day and people all over the kingdom to want to convert to Judaism? Who can even think that big? Well, God did, because that's exactly how he answered their prayer. He gave them this and so much more. He gives us what we need in our prayers. Now, some of you might be saying, you know, Greg, actually, in the book of Esther, the word prayer is never used. (laughs) And you'd be right, mostly. (laughs) In Esther 4.16, we see that Queen Esther talks about fasting, that the Jews need to fast, that her attendants need to fast, that she is going to fast. I did a study on prayer in the Old Testament, and I found that wherever you see the word fasting, prayer is implied. I mean, logically it makes sense, but biblically it has the support of that as well, which is more important, of course. Wherever fasting is mentioned, prayer always accompanies it. So if the author is talking about fasting, he's talking about a specific kind of prayer, an earnest, heartfelt, on-your-knees kind of prayer. Now, you can have prayer alone without fasting, but you always have to have fasting with prayer. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to talk to you about that further after the service. So we're talking about destroying sin. And in order to do that, we need to destroy the doubt. And in order to destroy the doubt in God's faithfulness, we need to record his faithfulness. And then we can see in front of us. And when we have this record in front of us, we are much less likely to stray. It's so much easier for us to stay on on point when we see that God is going to be faithful to us. And you know what? Mordecai realized this. He knew this about his people, and he didn't want his people to fall into the same trap. He knows that when there, is, when there is pain in our lives, when there is struggle in, the, in our lives, that we naturally doubt God. We become very myopic. We really focus in on our pain, and we don't care about anything else. We just care about the pain because we want it to stop. But if we have a record of God's faithfulness in front of us, we can know that there will be an end to the pain. We can be encouraged, and it helps us to stay on track. So Mordecai left a clue to us as to what he thought was most important. And the clue is in the date that he chose 
for when the festival is going to, the festival of Purim was going to be celebrated. Now, he could have chosen the 13th of the month. That was the day when the Jews defeated all of their enemies. But think about this. As time goes by, what is it they're going to be thinking about? What is it they're going to remember? They're going to remember how awesome the Jews are. Because <laughs> they can go out and defeat their enemies. Or he could have chosen the day that Haman was killed and that Mordecai became second in, con in command. But again, over time, even though we know that the, the series of events were just miraculous leading up to that, we can know that they would just warp it in their brains and eventually they would think, well, Mordecai was just this superhuman and Queen Esther was just this superhuman and they just they got the job done on their own. But instead, he didn't choose those dates. He chose the 14th and the 15th. And this is the day of deliverance. This is the day when it's all over. And when you're standing here, after it's all over, you can take a look at the entire story. And you can see, this is God moving through this story in a very powerful and a very deliberate way to help his people. It becomes so much more obvious at that point. So what is this festival all about? It's about remembering God's willingness and his ability to save his people. The reality is, is that God is faithful, that he loves you, that he hears you, and he wants to do something about that. He is trustworthy. That's what's in the record. That's what's in black and white in front of you, and you can refer to that at any time. So now we need to make a decision. We need to trust in God. See, when we forget and we doubt about God, we go into a very dark place. Because your future is so shaky. It's all about luck of the draw and, and faith in your ability to get through events that you have no control over. You don't have control over your health. You don't have control over health or over accidents or over your death. Or even if your boss is going to be mean that day. <laughs> Right? So, life is filled with anxiety and, and fear of what's coming around the corner. But if you know, remember that God is faithful and you remove the doubt, then you know that God has got your back. And you are free to live a bold life for God. And I remember I remember my son. When he was six months old, he had been three days in the hospital because for months his health had been failing. And I remember the doctor coming up to me and saying, you need to prepare for his death. And, and, and it hit me so hard. And it hit my wife and our family so hard. We wanted our son to live. Even now, it's hard to remember. And I prayed. Oh, I prayed. And we all prayed. And you know what? We got through it. And three days later, he was out of the hospital, and he started his road of recovery. And it was an amazing thing. And I remember how I used to be so alone. Even though I was surrounded by people, I felt so alone. I felt my life was so meaningless. I felt like all I was eating was junk food. There was nothing of substance in my life. 
Yet people were telling me that I was successful, but I didn't feel it. And I prayed to God, God, you've got to get me out of this. Please help me. And he came into my life in a powerful way and pulled me out of that mess that I had created for myself. And he put me into a life that he had intended. And I can know that God is faithful. Now, does this mean that we get all of our prayers answered? That we don't have to experience any pain? That everybody, all we have to do is pray for them and they're not going to die? Well, no, and, and quite frankly, I get confused why, why some Christians feel that that's how it should be. When all you have to take a look at is what happened to Jesus. I mean, he died a bloody, terrible, tortured death. And talk about unjust. I mean, it had to be the most unjust thing to ever happen to anybody ever in the history of the universe. But then I can see what happened. I can see that he was raised from the dead, that he's been placed in a position of honor. I can see that he changed the world back then, and he's changing lives today. And I can be reassured that God has got the long view in mind. So now I turn it to you. What is it that you remember? What is it that you remember? Is it hope in a hopeless circumstance? Is it encouragement? that you got at just the right time or good advice that you got at just the right time? Or has it been just a slow transformation where over time you are becoming something new and you look back at that person you were six months ago or a year or multiple years ago and you say, thank God I am not that person anymore. I am becoming something new. I have not arrived, but I am becoming something that is new. Because when we remember, we can remain confident that God is for us. So who can possibly be against us? We can know that nothing can separate us from Jesus and his love for us. When we remember, we can come to him with our burdens and he will give us rest. He can be our teacher and we can learn about life from him. We can know that he is gentle and humble in heart. And that we can take these anxieties, these things that keep us from sleeping at night, that gives us so much fear during the day, and we can give it to him. And in turn, he can give us peace and rest for our souls. When we remember what Christ has done for us on the cross and in our lives and for our future, it demands a decision. Are you going to decide to put Christ back in the middle of your life. Because remembering in and of itself is not enough. You are loved by the creator of the universe. It demands a response. If, if, you, if you accept this and you see the record before you, it demands a response or you're just playing the part of a fool and that's the last thing this world needs is another fool. See, when you remember, you must make a decision. And that decision has to lead to a life that is changed. When you remember what God has done, you will remember where God needs to be in your life.
God, we thank you so much that your record is so clear. We thank you so much for your faithfulness to us, our family and friends. God, we thank you so much that if we are, if we are new to the faith or we're just exploring the faith, that we can take a look at the record that you have in your word, that the record that you have in people around us that we can talk to and we can know of your faithfulness and know that, we are, that you are so worthy of our trust and our love. Lord, we thank you so much that you loved us when we were pathetic and rebellious, that you sent your son for us to die so that we might have relationship with you and that we might remember to put you in the center of our lives. Amen. Thank you.